Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host Brian and we've got something different for you guys this week. This week it's a swap cast. So basically it's an episode of another great show that I had the pleasure of appearing as a guest on. It was released a couple of weeks ago but in case you missed it I wanted to release it on this show as its own episode. The podcast is called Copper's Corner Podcast and it's a great show. In each episode, Copper and a guest pick an icon from music history and they go through their lives. You'll always be sure to learn something new, so make sure you go find it, subscribe and listen. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Copper's Corner, the music history podcast. I'm Copper Kelly, your host, and this week we're going to talk about Elvis Presley, the host of another podcast that's called Concerts That Made Us podcast, and his name is Brian O'Connor. Hello, Brian, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Copper, how's things? I'm uh, delighted to, to join you. Not so bad, not so bad. I actually appeared on your podcast, when was it now? A few months ago now, I think, at this stage, was it? Jeez, it must be about four or five months ago, is it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Brian has a great podcast in his, uh, by himself, and we'll talk about that now in a second. Uh, but today's, uh, yeah, today's subject is Elvis Presley. And Brian uh, picked Elvis as his, I suppose, favourite singer. One of the favourite singers of all time, anyway. And I did, I yeah. did. So we're going to get into the life and times of Elvis Presley. Uh, before we get into that, if you want to follow the podcast on social media, go over to Copper's Corner Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and you can support the podcast over on patreon.com forward slash Copper's Corner Podcast. Uh, it keeps the wheels turning and the fires are burning. Um, but yourself, Brian, if they want to find out where they can listen to the Concerts That Made Us podcast, where where can they find you? Yeah, so it's available on all your favourite pod players. The best place is probably the website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com and you'll find out all the info about that. So we basically, I interview guests about their concert experiences, their music influences. I've had many famous musicians on like Copper, less what? known musicians like Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> uh, it's a good mix. You know, there's up and coming uh, artists and the odd famous one thrown into the mix. But we generally have fun, have a good old, old chat. Copper's yeah. episode would be a good one to start. <laughs> I think um, I had the record at the time as, as being the longest episode that you had recorded. Had that, <laughs> has that been did. beaten since, I think? Is it? it has. Uh, <laughs> it was actually beaten by, I think, three minutes by your good friend Mark from Star Comedy Democrats. Ah, yes. He beat me by three minutes. Oh. <laughs> I think we got, what, two hours out of it or something like that? So we had a good chat. Yeah, it was just over two hours. Yeah. yeah. And we probably could have kept going. Mm. Of course, what I like about your podcast, you, you asked the guest, what's the first concert? What's the last concert? Favourite concert? The worst concert? Um, mm. And this kind of thing. And it's just real. it makes for a really good conversation. 
I think I've said to you before, when you're listening to it, kind of time just kind of melts away. And mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really, really enjoyable to listen to. But I suppose like what made you start the podcast in the first place? Uh, well, for the last couple of years, I got into podcasts maybe about five or six years ago. And I suppose like many people, I was always thinking I'd love to make my own podcast, but I couldn't think of what it'd be appealable or what yeah. I could do it on that I'd be interested in, you know, because like most podcasts, they'll start off and then eight, nine episodes in, the host will get bored and it'll just die away. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure it was something that I'd stick at. So uh, last year with the pandemic, uh, there was no live music. I love going to concerts. So I thought to myself, I can't be the only person that misses concerts. And you know what's good crack? Talking about concerts. <laughs> so let's start a podcast and ask people on to, to hear their concert stories. That way... If there's a band that you've always wanted to see, maybe they haven't come to your country yet. There could be someone there could want there could be someone on the podcast that has seen them and they'll have some cool stories that you can you can hear, you know? Yeah. Like my mate Mark Bulger here, he uh traveled around Europe following Pearl Jam. And he yeah. had, that was a interesting episode. He had all it sorts was. of ups and downs in that one. It was. I've always wondered myself what it'd be like to follow a band on tour, you know, around Europe, around the world. And yeah. he was the the first guest now that I've had on that actually did that. Yeah. It was a, a great episode. Lots of very interesting adventures along that. Yeah. It was a brilliant one. Sure. Yeah, you've had lots of different singers and I suppose um, musicians that have played with big names and in, in, yeah. in, in all of music pretty much. You had one guy who played with Slash and... and yeah. This kind of stuff as well, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that could be Eric Ferentinos you were talking about. Be, yeah. He, uh, he's kind of uh, an 80s hair metal guitarist and he's played <laughs> with all the greats from that era. He was uh, he was an interesting character. It was a, a fairly mental episode now. Yeah. But um, another guy that was that had played with some legends was uh, Ivan Funkboy Bodley. He's oh, yes. in the blues Hall of Fame and he's played for, with all the legends from you know R&B and blues and Motown down throughout the years I think he constantly tours with Sam Moore from Sam yeah. and Dave all right. he had some some cool stories as well yeah Jenny Mac yeah that's a great podcast anyone listen now if you want another good podcast another good podcast to listen to <laughs> apart from Corpus Corner is of course uh, go over to Conscious That Made Us and do make sure to follow and listen to any future episodes I think you're starting season two you're getting yeah. ready to get start season two soon, isn't it? Yeah, it'll, um, it'll be out as of recording. It'll be out in two weeks' time. So yeah. I think that's just near the end of September. Perfect, so. perfect. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you picked Elvis Presley for the topic of conversation today. Um, I suppose if listeners don't know, I always ask the guests who they'd like to talk about. I don't basically tell them, oh, we're going to talk about such and such. I ask, ask the guests, it's up to them. And then that kind of gives me, um, you know, an opening to learn about musicians that I had not basically known so much about. And I researched them and that kind of thing. Of course, you picked Elvis Presley, I suppose. What what made you pick Elvis Presley to talk about? Well, he was, uh, I think I was telling you before, I've listened to your podcast and I thought to myself, geez, if I was on that, it's the, there's only one person I could talk about. And that's Elvis. Like, he started it all. You know, he was the first yeah. one to come or come along and change the music scene. You know, he, he truly is the king of rock and roll. If Elvis had never been, you know, there probably wouldn't be any Beatles, any Led Zeppelin, 
the music scene down through the generations would be completely different, you know? And he was the coolest guy ever, mm. you know? There's an old there's an old saying about him, uh, women wanted to be with him and men wanted to be him, you yeah. know? <laughs> but uh, he was uh, the first global superstar, you know, and he just, he had it all. Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it now and hear all about the absolutely. things he did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll go through his life. And as I said, like, I, I, you know, I grew up knowing obviously who Elvis is, but I never, you know, deep dived into his music mm. or his background as much as I have in the last few days researching this uh, for this episode. Um, but yeah, it's a fascinating story and there's, it's massive story as well. I don't think mm. we can hope to definitively cover everything in the next hour or so. So no, um, I think you'd actually need a podcast dedicated just to, about Elvis. you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just to give you a scope of like a, some figures uh, on his career. Uh, in his time, he recorded or he filmed 31 movies. Uh, he did 784 songs he recorded in the studio mm-hmm. and he played 1684 concerts. Um, but that's what it might not sound like a huge amount for an artist the biggest him, but he had kind of periods where he didn't tour for like 10 years. Then all of a sudden mm-hmm. he was touring two shows a day for months on end kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's like he had the the couple of years when he was in the army where he he couldn't tour. Then he had the, as you said, the 10 years where he was signed to a contract in Hollywood making questionable movies. uh, We'll get to them as well in time. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And sure. Then after his comeback, he launched into Vegas and he was doing that until he died. Yeah. Constant touring, two shows a day. Yeah. Take its toll on you constant struggle in his life and yeah we get to he obviously died very young um was it 42 I think he was when he died yeah um yeah. and obviously we, we'll, we'll get to that um but I suppose we'll, we'll start at start and Elvis Presley uh was born Elvis Aaron Presley uh in January 8th of 1935 in Tupelo Mississippi he was a twin actually did you uh yeah he was a twin, so uh, I think just after he was born, the other baby came along, but unfortunately it was stillborn. That baby's name was Jesse Garen. So yes. like you said, his name was Elvis Aaron. Yeah. Jesse Garen was his brother. And That's right. that had a very big impact on his life going forward as well. Because I'm not sure if you were going to mention it later, but his mother used to tell him that it's kind of weird. His brother's life force went into him. So oh. he, inside him, he had Elvis and Jesse. And that kind of played heavily on his mind, especially in his later years. He, um, there's stories of him, you know, when he used to feel down or whatever, he'd mm. go into a room, turn off the lights, shine a lamp from the side, and he'd talk to his shadow as if he was talking to his brother. Oh, wow. Well, mm. that's, that's amazing, yeah. And of course, he was very close to his mother as well. He was the, some think that he had a kind of an odd relationship with, with his mother. He was extremely close. Mm. They, um, they had their own little language that right. only the two of them could understand. He used to actually sleep in his mother until, or sleep in the bed with his mother. That was odd. Uh, yeah. Sleep in the bed with his mother <laughs> until uh, a very yeah. late age as well. So he was incredibly close. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like he, um, when he was younger, he, I think he, he got a job as a truck driver in order yeah. to basically pay his way into get some recording sessions 
of um, basically just some demos done with a, a, a band uh, consisting of himself, guitarist Scotty Moore, and bassist Bill Black. And uh, his, I suppose his influences from a very early age were very heavily into blues and country um, mm-hmm. and gospel, gospel music. So yeah. country, myself being a country musician can relate to the, the countryside of things. He was very influenced by that. But also the blues and the R- R&B as well. Rhythm blues, you could call it back in the back in the day, and of course the gospel, the whole religious religious side of it, and it played heavily into his music from the early days. Uh, it did go off into a different direction later on in his career. Mm. Uh, he had a flamboyant, I suppose, personality from a, a young age, and he, had he was his, actually, uh, um, yeah, he was actually very shy though when he was going to school. Oh yeah, yeah. he wasn't he wasn't very popular, and he for one of his birthdays he got a guitar which was a, a major thing, as you said, they were very poor. And there yeah. was a couple of years where his, um, his father had went to prison. So uh, his father had sold a pig to a guy mm-hmm. and yeah. he had signed the wrong figure on the check. Oh. And the father thought to himself, I'll just add in an extra digit there. But he got caught. I think he got sentenced to maybe three years. So that was very tough. And it was yeah. probably one of the poorest times in their life. They had to, uh, uh, they lost the house they were living in, the little shotgun shack that he was uh, born in. Yeah. They had to move in with relatives and his mother Gladys had to do a lot of odd jobs and taking in other people's washing and laundry and just to stay afloat. But um, yeah. I think that's something else that influenced him or was kind of a weight heavy on his mind for the rest of his life. Yeah. Because when he started making money, he would buy his mother everything she ever wanted, even stuff she didn't want. Like he bought her loads of Cadillacs and he had an obsession with Cadillacs in the 50s. He bought his mother Cadillacs and uh, he wouldn't ever buy his father anything. If his father wanted something, he gave him a job and made him work for it. (laughs) Like the Cadillac, for instance, he bought his mother the Cadillac and then he paid his dad to be her chauffeur. You know, so he was very tough on his father. He was always, he'd never give him anything for free. He always made yeah. him work for it. But um, I know you mentioned... His, oh, sorry, the thing is with his mother as well, he, he said that his mother never asked for anything either. He, he probably just bought her everything, like, but she never asked yeah. for anything. She didn't want anything or anything like that. And that's always why I suppose he had a big affection for her that way as well. She wasn't exactly. trying to get anything out of him and anything exactly. like that. But, yeah, sorry, what, go on what you're saying there. That that's a another reason why, or a main reason why he bought Graceland as well. His mm. his famous house. It was for his parents to have a proper big house that they uh, they wouldn't want for anything, you know. Yeah. And of course, he was going to live there as well. But um, I was just going to say is um, when you mentioned the recording contract and the, he wanted to record with the band. Yeah. When he was eighteen, he was um working as a a truck driver. Yeah. And he wanted to tying into his tying into his affection for his mother he wanted to record himself singing for her as a gift for his for her birthday right and he went in and uh he i think it was a song called my happiness went in at, in those days you could go to uh the local recording studio in town yeah and pay i think he paid four dollars which back in you know it was 1953 54 that was a lot of money especially when he was you know, 18 years of age, driving a truck around, probably not getting paid a whole lot. No, it's probably a, f- a so, few weeks wages at least anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Especially down in the south, I'm sure, you know, in yeah. poorer areas, 
But um, the lady that was working there, the secretary, took a shine to him. Her name was, um, I think it was Marion Keister. Right. Took a, a shine to him and she stuck in his mind. And a couple of, um, a couple of weeks later, Sam Phillips, the head of the recording shop there, he was looking, he was on the search for months for this new artist. He wanted an artist that was white, but sounded like a colored person or like a black person and sang like a black person. Yeah. Because the area they're in, it was full of black musicians and, you know, the R&B blues, mm. you know. So there was, you know, segregation back then, you know, they Definitely. couldn't really play black people on the radio. Yeah, the civil rights like movement so hasn't really started hasn't, at all at this stage. Exactly. It's maybe exactly. murmurings of it, but it's kind of yeah, still very yeah. old fashioned times there. Yeah. Um, so he, he was a, a great fan of, of that type of music, yeah. but he wanted to be able to play it. So he wanted to find a white singer who could sound exactly like them. So a couple of weeks after Elvis had made the record for his mother, uh, Marion, the secretary, said to him, I think I might have found the perfect guy. This young guy came in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago and um, recorded this song. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. You should listen to him. So he called Elvis in and he got a couple of session musicians, uh, Scotty Moore and Bill, Bill Black. His name, Bill Black. Bill Black, yeah. yeah. He got them in to, to back him up. And they were there the whole day. Elvis was singing ballads and slow songs. Mm. And Sam, Sam, say it for me. Bill Black. Or Sam, Sam sorry. Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips. <laughs> yeah. Nothing was really, nothing was really jumping out at him, you know. He yeah. thought it was something, the same thing he sees every day when people are trying out, you know. And he was, the, the day was coming to a close anyway, and he was getting kind of more and more fed up. And he was like, right, guys, I think we better pack it up. So... Elvis was obviously disappointed. He thought he'd missed his, his big shot. So he turned around to the two guys and he was like, hey, do you know that's all right, mama? Mm. And he said, just follow me. I'll start playing it. And for any listeners that are familiar with that song, it's it's not a slow song. It's very upbeat. Yeah. And the minute you start playing it, then Sam Phillips's ears perked up and he was like, oh, my God, press record on this straight away. Mm. This is it. I found my guy. I always think to myself, imagine if if that little moment hadn't happened. You yeah. know, there'd be no Elvis. Just a sudden split thought. Hey, let's just yeah. do the strong song Rock It Up a bit. Um, yeah. It basically became Rockabilly. They dubbed it Rockabilly, that sound, a kind of yeah. fast-paced rock and roll. And uh, and it kind of retained some of this kind of blues influence on it as well. But yeah, that mm. was, I think that was his one, his first major hit anyway, was That's All Right in yeah. July of 1954. And uh, he was recording with Sun Records over the next next year. He had songs like Mystery Train. And uh, so he, he started making live appearances in, in regional roadhouses and clubs. And he uh, eventually had radio performance on the Louisiana Hayride, which we actually referenced in uh, the last episode of Hank Williams. He was a mainstay on that back in the day. He became, started to become popular, getting hits out there. And then a Mr. Colonel Tom Parker began to come into the picture. Mm. Um, what, what's your initial thoughts on Colonel Tom Parker? He was uh, Elvis's manager for basically all, of his, all the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't have much good thoughts on him now knowing what yeah. I know about him. Sure, he was great launching him to stardom and, you know, getting him in. He was kind of like one of these old, um, you know, old circus managers or old 
I suppose in Ireland we'd call them gangsters, but yeah. a real wheeler and dealer kind of slimy, slick guy. Greasy kind of a... Kind yeah. Of, yeah. And he came in and there was another guy managing Elvis at the time and he came in and spoke to his parents and basically told them he could get them the world. You know, he really wowed them with all this mm. fast talk and everything and won them over. And um, he was actually from... I think Netherlands are yes, Breda yeah. in the in the Netherlands. Yeah, and I, I looked into an... his his past a little bit more. Um, hmm. Of course, he he kept it hidden for many many years. As far as the world knew at the time, his name was Thomas Andrew Parker, and he was born in Huntington in West Virginia, short, shortly after 1900. Um, hmm. And he he had toured with carnivals and worked with elephants and managed a palm reading boot before basically becoming a music promoter in, in the 1950s. But the thing is, Parker never held a US passport. Although he did serve in the army, he did serve as a colonel. Mm. Uh, he was actually a private. And he was, um, he went absent without leave. He went AWOL for a time in 1932. And he served seven, several months in military prison for desertion. <laughs> but then he was only released after um, he had a psychotic breakdown where he was diagnosed as a psychopath and he was discharged from the army. And then a few years later, when World War II was happening, there was the draft and uh, Parker ate and ate and ate until he weighed more than 300 pounds uh, <laughs> in order to um, get the upper limit of the weight so he mm. wouldn't have to be fit for service. That's uh, dedication. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> his history started to kind of come out and towards the end of his life anyway. Mm. He actually was, yeah, he was from Breda in the Netherlands. Uh, but he was obviously saying he was from West Virginia. And uh, he's born there in 1909. And he's the seventh child of a delivery driver. Um, his real name was actually, I'll say this right now, Andreas van Kujik. I, I'm guessing. I'm not very good on my, my Dutch. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> but there's actually, um, I don't know if you heard about this. This is all allegedly and uh, circumstantial, I guess. I think but, I know where you're going. Yeah, you think I know where you're going. Apparently in 1929, he was still in Breda at this time, but he effectively overnight left and traveled mm -hmm. to, the, to the US without a penny in his pocket, pretty much. He left all his clothes behind, left everything and didn't tell anyone where he's going. And the reason that they potentially think, now this hasn't been proven or anything, but there was a murder uh, on that same night hmm. of uh, a young 23-year-old, um, Anna van den Enden. She was a grocery a grocer's wife that had been beaten to death. Um, but people can kind of link it, not... Just it's kind of circumstantial evidence, but basically he, she was killed on that day and he left town that night mm. and made a new life from new identities, you know, all that kind of stuff for himself in America. What have you you've heard of you've heard of that story before, have you? I have. I have, and I'd be uh, very inclined to believe that it's would, true. Yeah. You know, knowing how he behaved later in life. Mm. But um mm. that's actually the sole reason why Elvis Presley never performed outside of America. Yeah. Because the colonel wouldn't let him out of his grips to go over there without him. Yeah. And if the colonel left, he was first of all afraid if they went near the Netherlands, he'd be 
you know, arrested, but there was not hope he was getting back into America. So yeah. his life was over if he left America. So he wouldn't he was, let Elvis leave. He was technically an illegal immigrant mm. in the US and he didn't have a passport. So if he went out, he might not come back in. Um, yeah. But even though, even saying that though, there was a, like an amnesty for illegal immigrants sometime in the 1940s. Um, yeah, 1940. And he could have been offered an amnesty, but he didn't take it for some reason. And he also, you know, as Elvis's star began to rise, he could have actually reached out to senators or even Lyndon Johnson, the president at the time, he could have just called him yeah. up and said, hey, you need some citizenship <laughs> there, will you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He could have done it, but he never did for some reason. Basically kept Elvis in America. I think Elvis actually only um, played outside of America three times, and that was Canada. So, mm. and uh, your man, he didn't even cross over with him. Colonel Barker didn't cross over with him. Um, so that's uh, a big, in one sense, he put Elvis in the right place at the right time in order to make him famous. But the yeah. other hand, he, one hand he gave, another hand he t- took away. Especially, yeah, exactly. especially since apparently he took 50% of all of Elvis's earnings. Which yeah would be millions upon millions and millions and millions. And uh, I actually read here somewhere, um, his first, I suppose, contract with Elvis, he arranged for a presidency song catalog and recording contract to so- be sold to a major New York City-based uh, enterprises, Hill Range, Hill and Range and RCA Victor. Uh, so Sun Records for this, they received a sum of $35,000, which is a lot of money back then, yeah, uh, but Elvis got five thousand of that for his for his songs, his performances. He got five thousand, and I'm sure Tom Park would have got a sizable chunk more than Elvis yeah, for that. More than likely, yeah. Um, of course, Tom Park he was a avid gambler as well, especially in the <laughs> Las Vegas days. Um, yeah, yeah, there, he was. Um, there's a story one of Elvis's bodyguards tells that part of the. Tom, uh, uh, Memphis, Memphis Mafia. Mafia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tom Parker was down at the roulette or the craps table and he had bet, I think, something like a hundred grand and lost it. And he asked your man how much money he had and uh, on him. And he was like, no, get away from me. None of them guys liked the colonel, you know. Yeah. But uh, he got it off him anyway. He was like, look, I'm going to win. If you win on this, like you'll get more than double what you gave me. Of course, he lost it. He was mm. addicted to gambling, but he was all—he was also useless at gambling. Yeah, that's true. But um, that's it's, one of the reasons why Elvis apparently toured so much near the end of his yeah. life. You know that it was constant torn. Apparently, the colonel owed everybody money; like he was in debt for millions. And yeah. the only way, of course, he was going to make enough money was have Elvis torn every single day. Yeah, you know? exactly. I think there's one story of uh, Tom Parker losing 1.5 million in a night as well mm. just bonkers and yeah. there's another story where another of uh, me- the Memphis Mafia who were kind of I suppose Elvis's close closest friends they're his bodyguards mm. and it's kind of a, uh, assistance maybe you could say but he's basically kind of close friends that kind of kept, kept this kind of tight yeah, it was circle all guys he went to school with and met yes. in the army and he decided when he got big he brought them along with him he hired them you know as, their, yeah. as bodyguards he got them parts in the movies you know he gave them all jobs when Elvis liked you and thought of you as a friend he'd look after you you know he was very yeah. generous 
he actually he I'd say he ended up giving away more stuff than he actually you know more money than he made yeah but um he always said that he loved the, the his favorite thing in life was the expression on someone's face when he gave them something mm. you know he said that made him so happy like there's stories of he was going into a, a car dealership to buy a car for himself and all the bodyguards and as I mentioned before he loved Cadillacs yeah. but um there was a woman there who had brought her car in and it was, you know, an old beaten up thing. You know, she'd brought it in to be serviced and fixed up. Elvis went over, asked her what car she really liked in there, in the in the lot. Mm. She picked out one. She was like, oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. It'd be my dream car. Maybe someday I'll have it. And yeah. he goes, uh, someday is today. It's yours. <laughs> and he bought her. You know, he was always buying cars. If someone sent them a letter, you know, a fan fan mail back in those days. Someone said a sent him a letter saying, you know, they were going through some hardship or anything. Mm. He'd be like, Hey guys, buy your a house or buy your a car or you know, he was always helping people. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a generous, generous kind of guy, all right. Um but uh yeah, that that story with the guy under the Memphis Mafia, he was gambling himself one night at uh maybe a craps table or whatever it is, blackjack table one night in Las Vegas and this guy, he was gambling himself anyway, and he was up from like $2,000 up to $150,000. So he was doing mm. fairly well for himself. But here comes along Colonel Parker then, grabs your man's chips and puts it all on one number, let's say, whatever it is. He places all your man's chips, not his chips, whether your man's chips, onto a number. And of course, the guy who rolls a seven loses it all. All $150,000 gone. And he turns to Colonel Parker like, what, you know, what the hell are you doing? It's like, how much did you, how much did you start with? Start with 2,000. Here it is. <laughs> he gave him 2,000. <laughs> you didn't lose anything, Tom Parker says. And technically he was right, but yeah, it's not a cool thing to do. Sting a bit. <laughs> Up at 100,000, 150,000. So Elvis was getting loads and loads of hits. He was going strong. Um, Colonel Parker was, I suppose, putting him in the right place at the right time. Started getting him film roles. So mm. he had a, as I said at the start of the episode, he did 31 films over the course of his career. But some of the films that he went into were Blue Hawaii. There was uh, Viva Las Vegas, which actually I watched there yesterday. Well, I kind of flicked through it at least. What do you think? Um, it was fun. It's, it was, <laughs> I, I, the reason I picked it was because it was like about a race car driver and all this kind of thing. I was like, oh yeah, I like cars and racing and stuff. So yeah. I was like, let's go into it. But then he, he was racing for like five minutes at the end and it was against like a blue screen or, you know, the green screen mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, that he kind of created his own genre movies they kind of became known as Elvis movies because he they did. were basically kind of a comedy a romantic comedy with musical numbers musical interludes yeah he said. was it didn't start like that his first film was Love Me Tender yeah and he was really excited about it he thought he was he he idolised James Dean and Marilyn Brando mm. and he wanted to be like them so when he started making movies it was like yes I'm going to be the next biggest actor I'm going to be just like my heroes yeah. so um, but the colonel had other ideas he thought the only way that he'd actually make money and sell the movies to audiences as if Elvis sings now the first few films were fine you know they were like other films from the 50s proper proper serious you know he where he'd have to act then they got into a habit of basically making the same film over and over. He was either yeah. a race car driver who could sing or a speedboat racer or a mm. boxer or, you know, he's he was always, always trying to get the girl. Of, 
Exactly. And the girl didn't want any part of him at at the beginning, but then warmed up to him. That kind of idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, If I had to pick one from the later movies um, that I, you know, I'd watch again, maybe, because they're all the same. But one that's probably the most fun is called Kissing Cousins. And there's two Elvises in it. He, he, um, so he's like this, uh, this army guy. And they're going into the like the bush in Tennessee where there's hillbillies. And right. he has to convince the hillbillies that live there to let him and the army put a big missile base on their land. But he finds out that um, he's they're his cousins. And one of them is actually like his identical twin. So it's basically Elvis. And it's the only time you'll ever see Elvis with his natural hair color. Because Elvis wasn't naturally black haired. He yeah. was a kind of a, a sandy, blondy brown haired. Right. Okay. So the when he's playing the other character in the film, he has sandy brown blonde hair. But um yeah, it's probably the most enjoy in the most enjoyable out of the later films. Yeah, so yeah. I heard that go, one though. Go check it out. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, he, apparently they were like juggernauts. They were like absolute, you know, box office smashes. And of course, yeah. every movie he did, there was, you know, multiple musical interludes, multiple songs in that film. And and then those soundtracks kind of became his next album at yeah. the time. Even though it wasn't, I suppose, your regular idea of an album, it was just the soundtrack of the film. And there's a lot of songs. So each film would have different sets of songs, but the song kind of suits the scene in the mm. movie. Um, and if you listen to all the songs on an album, they might not kind of sit right or they might not kind of suit Elvis' style. So he yeah. kind of began to become kind of I suppose disillusioned with doing it that way. He did. He wasn't making the music that he wanted to. He was, mm. t- he was kind of told the right song to play for the right scene. Uh, yeah. And then they were released as his or uh, kind of officially his record but they weren't really officially his record, you know, his albums, let's say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um. They were more, for a good period, they were all he was releasing, you know, because yeah. it was movie after movie. You know, he'd make one movie for a couple of months and then a couple of weeks break and then straight on to the next one. Yeah. And they were the only records he was releasing. And he uh, he deeply, deeply missed like a live audience because obviously he was literally just in the recording studio recording the soundtrack. That was it. He wasn't touring and he yeah. really missed that. And it was a mix of uh, the movies getting worse. And him not being able to tour to people or actually get any feedback from fans about yeah. his music, you know, yeah. that led to him being very unhappy. He There's stories that it actually started to physically affect his uh, his health, you know, mm. that he was getting so frustrated with it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, that eventually leads to, uh, I suppose later on in the line, leads to his dependency on pills. Um, mm. but yeah, there was plenty of films that he didn't want to do at all. And... Yeah. I've heard a voice recording of Tom Parker saying, I know if if, if uh, Elvis ever came to me and said he wanted to do a film, that's fine. We wouldn't do that film. And then the next thing was another guy, one of his Memphis, Memphis Mafia guys saying, yeah, there's this one particular film that Elvis just didn't want to do. He just wants to refuse it. Hmm. But then Tom Parker came down, the, the movie guys, you know, the movie studio guys came down, basically told him, if you don't do this, you won't be working again. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that was basically the story of his story of most of his career, really. He did he, there was a 
a time again we get to where he did kind of start to find his feet again find his inspiration in that but for many years he was just told what to sing what to do where to stand what yeah. to say you know he had no exactly. real choice in it um, I suppose this is coming up to now 1950 late 1957 1958 when he was actually drafted into the US Army but at the time I suppose being drafted into the US Army it wasn't the worst time it could have been, you know, could have been worse. Could have been Second World War, or exactly. the Korean War had just finished, 1955, I think. So he wasn't going to be sent to any front, thankfully. Hmm. Um, but apparently, you know, news that Elvis was going to the army. He, Elvis was a major star at this time, anyway. Yeah. And the news that this guy was going to the army um, was huge. And apparently, there was, you know, the Air Force wanted him. Um, different parts of the army wanted him as a kind of. Uh, almost like a mascot, let's say. We'll bring Elvis in yeah. now, we'll, we'll tour him around to all the troops and uh, he'll boost morale, this kind of stuff. But Elvis, he basically said, no, no, let's just do, uh, look, treat me like any other, any other soldier. Yeah. I'll come yeah, in and I'll just do my... special treatment. They want the special treatment. Yeah. Do it all and experience it properly. Yeah, that's right. So he, he was sent to Germany and uh, I think he was asked, how are the other guys in his, you know, group or whatever, treating them and he said yeah no they're they're all good they, they you know they know I'm not here looking for special treatment they, hmm. they you know they get on we, we just get on with, with what needs to be done and that did you see there's uh, the media coverage of it was crazy at the time yeah there was yeah. never so much people at a you know what you call it, a signing office for a dra- draft office what you call draft it draft office yeah. yeah yeah and then it's crazy the footage you know it's you can see him there's everything from them putting his name on the bag to him getting his hair cut and, yes. you know, getting sized up for his uniform. It's, it's of course, mental. He had his iconic haircut at the time, his side locks and this jet yeah. black hair, but then he had to get it all He'd shaved off, crew, crew cut. cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he was, um, beforehand though, it's, um, I know the media had said that it was great and he was really looking forward to it and all, but mm. behind closed doors, he was actually very worried about it. He thought his career was over. You know, yeah. The colonel had been, had had him in the studio for months leading up to it. So he'd have enough tracks to continuously release records while he was in the army Yeah, to keep his name in people's minds. But there was a change coming as well, you know, like Buddy Holly had died. There was lots of, um, lots of new types of singers coming up. And Elvis thought, if I go away now for three or four years, yeah. there's going to be nothing when I come back. So he was deeply worried and... The army was, he enjoyed it, but it was also a dark period for him as well as I'm sure we'll, mm. we'll get into. As we were saying with the music soundtracks or the movie soundtracks, um, the songs he was putting out there weren't really the songs that he wanted. He, weren't, he wasn't developing his sound mm. as a musician and he wasn't in touch with what was going on in rock and roll at the time. Basically the genre that he created pretty much Um it was kind of again the life of his own and without him and it kind of went mm. off in its own directions like you had the Beatles and so on and he was kind of out of the loop let's say he was in his yeah. in his bubble doing the the movie songs and that and um, I suppose yeah before before this as well he had this kind of um, reputation as being you know the rock and roll had a reputation of being like the devil's music it was full of <laughs> yeah. you know sex and a horrible terrible stuff corrupting the youth of America this mm-hmm. kind of thing and 
uh, he was on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, yeah. This is a fairly famous one. I think it was just before he went to the army. And they had to frame him from basically the waist up because he's, he was very known for his pelvis. Elvis the pelvis, yeah. they call him. He was shaking his pelvis. And apparently that was the height of ludicrous um, <laughs> carry on. And yeah. so on the Ed Sullivan show, he's framed from the, the waist up. But everyone kind of knew what was going on underneath mm. the frame, let's say. And yeah. uh, it's just funny the way it's, you know, if some of those people back then, if they had seen something like, you know, Cardi B today or something like that, they'd, be, <laughs> they'd probably die right on the spot, I'd say. That's what I'm always thinking. Like, it's weird to think that Elvis Presley was banned when he came out first, you know, and there was actually people protesting against his music being played or if he was making a po- an appearance places in, in the South. Right. You know, there'd be protests there, a lot of angry parents and everything saying that he was no good for the youth and everything. Mm. And all he was doing was literally like shaking his legs when yeah. he was on stage and dancing around. You know, I suppose they were so used to singers like Frank Sinatra just standing still in front of the mic, you know. Yeah. But he was good the whole singers. Yeah. 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 He was getting yeah. blamed for teenage hooliganism and juvenile delinquency. Mm. But I suppose it was kind of the antithesis when he was on, say, he was being interviewed. He was very kind of affable and he was very polite, um, soft spoken. And as you said earlier, he's shy. So, he, yeah. you know, when he's off stage, he's very shy. But I mean, when he's on stage, he's like Elvis Pelvis. He went for it. He was, <laughs> didn't hold back. But yeah, he's, he's off stage for someone to kind of, Basically went against that whole reputation mm. of being, you know, a trouble troublemaker. Yeah, he was very. Uh, some people would have called him moody and mm. you know quiet and very introspective. Yeah. So um, yeah. In in the nineteen sixty, then he returned from the army. But you you were saying things went a bit dark in the army. Is that what you're saying, or is it after the army? Yeah, yeah. Um, during his time in the army, he had um. That was his first time getting properly into drugs and it stayed with him. You know, they used to, I think the term they used for him was Benny's. Benny's. That's what they used to call Benadryl pills. or something. Or is that Probably, yeah. Maybe, it was yeah. Um, uppers. It was basically like speed. They'd yeah. be sent out on drills and they'd have to stay awake for the whole night, you know, and obviously that's hard to do. So all the soldiers would start taking uppers yeah. and stuff like speed. To, to stay awake but there were always prescription you know yeah. and he viewed prescription drugs as not drugs yeah because that's the thing back the in the day yeah every every single thing he took was prescribed there's nothing yeah. illegal nothing like that and of course yeah. the, the ideas of what opiates can do back then or at least they didn't have any ideas of the side effects long term side effects mm. they had none of that they were just freely prescribing them yeah um, exactly and, uppers um, and downers and sleeping pills and whatever over the course yeah, of his next few years. Yeah, to think of it, you know. And um, then, of course, the perception that it came from a doctor always stuck with him. So he always thought if it com- comes from a doctor, it's fine, it can't harm you. Yeah. But um, yeah, probably the worst time in his life came during the army and possibly the best time in his life. It was kind of a double-edged sword. He met uh, Priscilla. Yeah. While he was in Germany. And of course, his mother passed away, which was totally devastating for him. As we've mentioned earlier, how close they were, you know, it must have felt like a massive part of him was gone, you know? Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah, she died when he was still in Germany. 
Mm. And I think later on, Priscilla said that when I think she she visited Graceland for the first time, she found a closet full of Elvis's or Gladys's uh, Gladys's clothes, um, shoes or belongings, stuff like that. And Stephen get her her smell, her scent on the mm. on the clothes. So he kind of he had this real deep connection to her. Yeah, but it was then, almost like a, a shrine. Yeah, yeah. As you said, though, he did meet Priscilla, um, and she was, I think, only a teenager at the time. She was still in high school. She was school. Uh, 14, I think. That's true, was, yeah. <laughs> he was uh, 25. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little questionable. A dodgy. Yeah, mm. a little dodgy. But eventually, she did move back to America with Elvis, and they actually got married in, I think it was 67. Hmm. Um, I think he waited f- until she was out of high school, at least. <laughs> that's uh, yikes! <laughs> as you know, as legendary as he is, that's something that I don't know. You can't get past. Like she, yeah. uh, people don't she talk about back. that part so much. No, no, they don't. Yeah. But after the army, he went back to the states and back to Graceland and kept sending her letters. And you know, there's yeah. a famous thing of he's a. It's a little audio clip of him it was like when I got back they kept asking was there anyone special and I have to say no and That's true, of course yeah. they got pictures of her at the airport and they kept saying the, the girl he left behind but he said no there was no one special mm. but he kept writing her parents then and asking could she come and live in Graceland and uh, that his grandmother who lived in like a little granny flat on the grounds of Graceland yeah. that she could live there and his grandmother would take care of him and he'd make sure she goes to school and, you know, there'd be nothing romantic until she was 17 or 18. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it lasted more than a week that she was living with the grandmother. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's very, so, very odd. But there's a yeah. couple of singers back then. That Jimmy Page like that. was one. <laughs> yeah. Jerry yeah, Lee Lewis. Jerry well. Lee, oh, he, that was his, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis married his cousin. Yeah, and I think she was like 12 or 13. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, there was... um, weird. It's a very strange habit of (laughs) these guys doing that kind of thing. But I suppose we've mentioned Graceland, we didn't go into it before, but Graceland, of course, was Elvis's mansion Mm. that he has in Memphis, Tennessee. Apparently it's 13.8 acres inside. And he he bought it for something like $104,000 in the 1950s, something Mm -hmm. like that. And um, of course, that's where he lived any time he wasn't on tour. And yeah. Now it's you know it's a tourist attraction. You have you have thousands, a museum, and thousands yeah. of people coming from all around the world, and you hear stories of people like uh, say this one woman in Australia. She goes twice a year, every year for the last <laughs> sixteen years or something like yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's mental. I think yeah. it's like either the number one or number two most visited places in America. Hmm. It's um. A protected building now as well, of course. Right, a yeah. Protected historical building. Yeah. Course. It's, it's, and of course, it has cool the um, what? So yeah, no, it has the iconic gates at the front as well, with yeah. the, the music notation on it and the Elvis playing the guitar. And um, he's he's actually he's buried there as well, isn't he? He is. He's, he's he is out in, the, there. out in the garden. Yeah. So on big uh, anniversaries of his death, let's say. You could have tens and tens of thousands of people, of tourists coming, mm-hmm. of Elvis fans coming from all around the world to come see him. Um, which is, is, it says here you could have had 
650,000 visitors a year. And obviously that was before pandemic times. But yeah. I'd say it's, it's creeping back up again, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> I'd say so. But um, it's like it's like Disneyland for Elvis fans, yeah. really. You know, there's so much there. And pardon me, there's um, there's so much there. And, you know, there's you can go see his planes, his cars, his suit. There's a big, mm. massive building across the road now. It's like a big warehouse where it houses everything he owned. And there's, um, I think there's like a an, a super VIP ticket you can buy where it'll bring you through in small groups. You have to put on these gloves, but it'll actually let you hold his jewellery and his car keys, mm. stuff like that. But um, It's mad, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is. But it's yeah. kind of cool that it's there as well for Elvis fans, you know? Mm. That's it, that's it. And I suppose then when he, getting back to his the timeline, um, he did come back from the, the army, he was straight back into the movies again. Colonel mm. Parker had him straight back in. As you said, while he was in the army, he had a stockpile of songs lined up and ready to release every few months or every few weeks or whatever it was, to kind of keep his name out there, kind of keep, yeah. keep in, the, in, in the minds of fans. But then, yeah, you'd be straight into the movies. You had um, uh, Change of Blue Hawaii, Change of Habit, Evil Las Vegas, all these films. You could go on and on and listen them all out, but we'd be here all, all day. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he had he had very famous songs from these films. Like as I said, the soundtracks were being released, so you had like "Viva Las Vegas" and all these kind of songs that were they were kind of standout. And even mm. Priscilla Presley said, she says, "Not all of them are bad. You did have the good ones now and again." <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. But that's obviously not where he wanted to be as a um, as a singer. So, and again, this is a period of time from before the army. To up to 1968, he hadn't toured at all. He hadn't played yeah. a gig in like 10 years, something like that. Yeah. And I think the last gig he did was for like a, a, a charity gig for the army, somewhere mm. around 1958, give or take. I think that was the last gig he actually did in front of people. Yeah. 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 Um, but the first big gig he had um, in that 10 years was the 1968 special. Are mm. you very familiar with the, this particular special? I, I am, yeah, the comeback special. Yeah, that um, that was massive, you know, and the such iconic as well imagery yes. with it. You can see him on the little stage, surrounded by people, and uh, in the leather suit with the the Gibson. Is it a three five five or something? Three, I think guitar. it's three five five. Yeah, yeah, and, it's a big, you know, semi hollow body acoustic electric guitar. Is yeah, that, and he's there. He's sitting there with the original guys from the fifties, Scotty yeah. Moore and Bill Black, and uh, you it was know, a small crowd as well. There was about less than a hundred anyway. It was like maybe sixty, seventy, and they're all kind of a select group of kind of invitees. Yeah, yeah, and, and they're all very close to him. Like they're only yeah. about a foot away from. Him. Yeah, and so if you, you picture, know, it, yeah, was, he had this square stage in the center with the with Elvis and the, and the band, and then the audience is kind of around him, and. Mm. Apparently, yeah, before he went on, he brought in one of the guys in the band and he told everyone else to leave the room because he wants to talk to the guy from the band. And he goes to him, look, I, I don't want to do this. I, I want to call, call this off. Like, I, I've been practicing the songs earlier on, but I can't remember what songs are. I can't remember the stories going to tell between the songs. My mind's a blank. I'm going to, I can't do this. But his friend goes, look, we're not going to, I'm not going to tell you what to do 
but I think you should do this. <laughs> you know, I'm mm. not telling you this to make money or anything. This is like, just for your own sake, I think it's wise to go and do this. Yeah. Yeah. So Elvis did go out and I, I saw the first few minutes when he went out and he, he stood on the stage, he looked around like people, oh, people, they kind of like me. He, he's always afraid <laughs> of how people would react because he'd been away yes, for exactly. so long and he, he was so like deathly nervous. Yeah. And he, he went up and he picked up his guitar and he sat down. He just started strumming this rock and roll song, this 12 bar blues kind of a mm. song. And even for the first few minutes, he didn't sing. He's just jamming. He's just jamming. He's yeah. just doing a few guitar licks. He was getting the feel for it. He was just kind of, the guys were playing along with him, kind of following what he was doing. And he was leading the band, let's say. But you kind of, you can tell, you could see him kind of click and go, yeah, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> yeah. He was away for it for so long. Yeah, um, exactly. Must yeah. have been some feeling though, to, you know, realizing people still love you mm. and still want them to, to perform like. Yeah. And then you could, uh, you could see him gradually getting more and more relaxed, as you said. And I think before he launched into his first song, there's a bit where they start playing the first few notes and he stops and he goes, no, wait, wait, wait. I forgot my lip thing. Didn't I used to curl my lip? <laughs> and you know I'd start laughing but it was um he it was cool that he'd stop and tell stories and jokes mm. and you know yeah it would have yeah. been epic to be one of the people in the crowd yeah. for that you know because that's that's peak Elvis doesn't get better than that you know it's not mm. it's not new young 1950s Elvis it's not old Las Vegas washed out Elvis it's 68 comeback Elvis is in his prime. He's the yeah. fittest that he's ever been in his life. Looking great, sounding great. You know, that's when you want to see Elvis. Yeah, it was around this time that I suppose Tom Parker was still his manager, but I don't think he had as much of a grasp on him at this time. Kind of, Elvis started like writing new songs himself, taking old influences from gospel. And I think he released a gospel album at this time as well. Mm. And yeah. uh, he... He loved doing it and you could tell in his voice that he loved performing it as well. And then he went on to release um, Suspicious Minds in 1969, which was like one of the only singles that he had released in a long time that wasn't connected to a movie that yeah. he did. And it was straight up to number one. And of course, Suspicious Minds is still, it came out there again. Remember a few years ago, it became huge again. Yeah. Yeah, songs like Bossa Nova and all these songs kind of yeah there was a remixes less conversation and less conversation more like there's not many people yeah. that like 40 years after their death are still getting number ones you yeah. know mm, mm. that was that was probably well that was probably 10, 10 plus years ago in that but now but everything mm, seems like yeah. so it doesn't seem so long ago mm. um, yeah there was a big uh, rejuvenation of Elvis songs there in the last 10-15 years yeah yeah and I suppose now that, that now that I think of it, the whole film, you know, Lilo and Stitch, that the Disney film. Yeah, actually. That was based, <laughs> like, all the songs were Elvis songs in that. Yeah, and yeah. It was the little like, alien uh, was a fan. He dressed up in the leather suit and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a cool way of introducing a younger, a very younger audience into yeah. Elvis's music. That's true. Know? Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, he was... After he released Suspicious Mind, he basically kind of found the stride again. This was like, as you said, his like peak, peak Elvis. Hmm. So he had married Lisa Marie in 67. Persil. Had, oh, sorry. 
<laughs> so I'm getting mixed up. Priscilla. And then his daughter, Lisa Marie, was born in 1968. But um, her, himself and Priscilla ended up getting divorced in 1973 mm. because Elvis was out on the road all the time. He wasn't basically connected to her, I suppose, in any way. She couldn't go out and roll with him because she had to look after the kid. Yeah. And I suppose it drifted apart. But apparently she was saying that they were still holding hands in divorce court. There was still great affection between the two. They just couldn't make it work, I suppose, long yeah, term. Yeah, the, uh, the thing was he um, he couldn't seem to understand that, you know, he had to be faithful when he was out on the road and he couldn't, he'd got very used to you know, the rock star life being out on the road and he'd be, you know, he might be only home for one month a year, you yeah. know, and he'd be torn the whole time and, you know, many, many women every night. But, yeah. um, and he felt like she should be fine with that. But it was when she ended up having an affair and I know diehard Elvis fans would be like, oh, that terrible woman. Yeah. I'm sure they'd say <laughs> worse things, but uh, you couldn't really blame her. You know, mm. she was, he yeah. brought her over when she was 14. She, all she knew growing through her teenage years and her 20s was living at Graceland, you know, and she couldn't, it's not like she could go out and, you know, enjoy mm. a meal at a restaurant with her husband because it'd be mobbed. She didn't have a yeah. normal life at all. So he's off. Then they have a baby and she's left at home. Being a mother, mind the child, and he's off having the time of his life around America. So she ended up having an affair and that's when Elvis got really, really, you know, mad. Yeah. He um he didn't like it one bit. He felt like he should be able to do it, but she can't. You know, she's mm -hmm. a wife for places in the house, in the home, looking after the family. She shouldn't even have those thoughts at all. She yeah. should just be devoted to him. But as you mentioned, they stayed the best of friends and apparently they never stopped loving each other. Mm. There's a, the, I think you're referring to the, the famous photograph of them leaving divorce court and they're yeah. holding hands and smiling, yeah. which is unusual to see. But yeah, they um, they were very amicable, amicable, yeah. amicable yeah. to each <laughs> other and the best of friends even after afterwards, you know, and still, still in each other's lives. That's it, yeah. But um, I think it was actually, I think it was Chuck Norris or... She had had a friend of, she had had an affair with Chuck Norris. Oh, yeah. But it was, um, I think, her karate teacher that Elvis had hired to teach her karate. She's the, he's the guy that she had an affair with that ah. led to them breaking up. But Elvis wanted to hire a hitman and he gave the guys in the Memphis Mafia the order to go out and hire a hitman. And well. they thought to themselves, yeah, we're going to like wait until he calms down because I'm sure he doesn't want to really do this. So for a while they're like, yeah, 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 we'll we'll do it. Yeah, oh yeah, we, we're we're in the middle of sorting that out. Mm. Then a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, he was like, you know what, guys, I think I'll leave it. You know, I I, yeah. uh, I don't think I want to do that. So luckily they didn't rush out and, you know, hire a hitman to go and kill the guy. Well, Things uh, like, would have been very different. Yeah, I did a bit of research on this and I, that, I didn't come across that at all really none of the horror affair <laughs> none of the talk about hitman none of that so that's that's oh, news to me oh. so I suppose a lot of that stuff is kind of hidden I guess you could say yeah that's the thing especially nowadays I suppose Elvis is glorified more and more you know yeah. and, uh, you have to really deep dive for 
any of the darker stuff or any darker of the stuff, yeah. bad stuff. I mean, like there's fans out there that, you know, it'd be blasphemy if you said one bad thing about Elvis, mm. you know? It's true, yeah. Hopefully I mean, there's, there's no a... diehard Elvis fans listening to this now and <laughs> furiously <laughs> typing in some <laughs> emails. Well, I can thingy. imagine all the emails you'll get. <laughs> oh, but uh, Yeah, did you know there's actually a church of Elvis? No, I did not. What? Yeah. <laughs> there is. In America. In America somewhere, there's actually a registered religion where they worship Elvis. Well, I think it's called the Church of Elvis. It's a bit please mad. Please tell me that the priest or whoever's given the sermon is dressed as Elvis. He has to be. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd say he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Of course, in Las Vegas, you can get, pre- you can get uh, married by an Elvis impersonator. So that's a huge thing up there as well. Yeah. <laughs> it is. There's nearly every second chapel I believe is an Elvis chapel and mm. they have uh, a guy dressed as Elvis who will marry you yeah it's, it's been an experience but I think it's a bit cheesy <laughs> I think so too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make a good like Instagram photo but that's what you like to say exactly yeah Yeah. so it was during this 1973 that they got divorced and of course this was because of the, the huge touring schedule mm. that Tom Parker had Elvis on um and it kind of came to the stage where Elvis wanted to start touring outside of America, wants to go to Europe, go to Japan, back to Germany, wherever. Because mm. um, there was, obviously, he did have an audience out there. People were clamoring for him to go. But, of course, we mentioned earlier that Tom Parker didn't want to do that in case he didn't, for one thing, he didn't want to let Elvis go on his own. Yeah. Or he didn't want someone else to look after Elvis while he was over there because he wouldn't have full control and you might end up losing Elvis or whatever mm. it is. So basically, he didn't want to tell Elvis exactly why he didn't want to go anywhere. A, because he could get arrested if he goes back to Holland or B, he might not get back into America because he was an illegal immigrant. But he kind of, I kind of, you know, bit around the bush, I suppose, and kind of didn't give Elvis a real clear, um, you know, this is why we're not going to Europe or anything like this. Mm. But what he did do in, uh, was it 19... 73 um, he decided to get around this conundrum where Elvis wants to leave the country um, Tom Parker decided to put on a satellite um, show hmm. so are you familiar with this, this is Aloha from Hawaii I am satellite I am yeah it's a, so, it was a great idea by the colonel to you hmm. know to quieten Elvis for a while to stop the nagging about leaving the country yeah you know because technically he had to get on the plane and cross an ocean to get there. Yeah. But it was the first globally televised satellite event, event I think, had the highest yeah. figures of people tuning in as well. It was that, a global yeah. event. It was huge. Mm. There was such, loads of media coverage around it. Basically, it was a gig performed in Haloa that was being um, satellite, what would you say? Streamed. Uh, broadcast. Streamed, yeah. as you say. No, <laughs> broadcast. <laughs> Uh, around the world to potentially millions and millions, if not billions, potentially. Mm. Um, and Elvis, obviously, he was deathly terrified as well about this. He was so nervous. There's another thing about him. He was incredibly nervous about all this stuff. Because yeah. um, even going back to the 68 special where he was just performing in the front of just a few people, then all of a sudden, I think his next gig after that, like a few weeks later or whatever, was in Las Vegas where he was in front of thousands, let's say. Mm. And he he was like an absolute nervous wreck the whole time. But you wouldn't tell. As soon as he got on stage, it was just once he found his flow, 
he was away. Yeah. You know, yeah. he wouldn't tell the his personality nerves. came out. Hmm. And some but people then, were saying that the person that he was on stage was Elvis. And then he had to kind of act when he was off the stage, act this kind of shy person. But when he went on stage, that was real Elvis. Yeah. Whereas a lot of musicians the other way around. It's kind of, they're just a yeah, normal person. An then they go on stage and then they become a new character or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's an odd one, all right. Mm. But um, yeah, he would suffer awful with his, with his nerves, as you were saying. Um, for years, he'd have a lot of stomach problems when he'd get nervous. And yeah. then, of course, the, the eating wouldn't and the stuff he ate wouldn't help, you know. But um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and this show, this uh, Aloha from Hawaii, this was just after his 59-show engagement in Las Vegas. So this was Colonel Tom Parker in his most controlling state, was getting Elvis to perform two gigs, two concerts a day, mm. possibly seven days a week, if not six days a week, in uh, Las Vegas as a residency, as you call it, as it's called nowadays, uh, Las Vegas residency. But yeah, 59 shows in 30 days. It's give madness, or take. isn't it? And like, you know, being like being a musician, if you, you know, getting up and playing for an hour or two, you're pretty much drained from that. And then you don't want to have to go and do it again. And then the next yeah. day, twice again. It's just, yeah, it's You'd totally You could keep it up like, mm. really. And obviously but, he didn't. And no, as we'll hear, but even for that amount of years, how you could keep it up, you know, practically working every day. And, yeah. you know, like he wasn't, as we mentioned before, he wasn't the type of um, person to stand still on stage. No. When he was in Vegas, he started adding karate. He was obsessed <laughs> with karate. So yeah, start added karate moves into yeah. his stage act, you know. And if you watch him, like he's sweating buckets and mm. he's moving all over the stage. He uses the full stage. Doing that twice a night, twice a day, you know, in the afternoon, yeah. then the evening. That is going to kill you eventually. Yeah. And it was said that as well. These people that were coming to these Las Vegas gigs, these were people that had money, let's say. Mm. They weren't the general public. They weren't the people that Elvis necessarily wanted to play to. Because at the front of the stage, you have dinner tables. And those dinner tables, in order to get one of those tables, you had to lay down a lot of money for your ticket. Mm. So these were kind of high rollers, kind of older people that wouldn't, I don't know, they probably just wanted to be there to be seen to be there and not necessarily listen to Elvis. So wouldn't I mean, appreciate him. Wouldn't appreciate. So Elvis he is here it. playing to these people and he didn't get anything back off them. Yeah. So that's the thing when you're playing live, you do love getting a response from the crowd. You know, they cheer what you're doing and you tell they, they let you know what you're doing is right and they give you an energy and you know, you make them excited, they make you excited and it kind of builds yeah. the energy and basically exactly. makes a good show. But yeah, he, um, he didn't find he really that. really missed the, the fans from years ago, you know, the younger teenagers and younger people who'd be screaming and getting so excited, you know. Like yeah. you must know yourself when you're performing. If you were performing to a lot of people eating their dinner and, you know, maybe just glancing up at you every yeah. now and again, how would that make you feel, you know? It's horrible. There was one time I, I performed to it, a, a group of uh, accountants and actuaries. Right. It was kind of, uh, it was a slow gig. <laughs> it sounded like a fun bunch, all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, less about that would say the better, I suppose. But um, yeah, so he did the Aloha from uh, Hawaii. 
Aloha, Aloha from Hawaii, yes. <laughs> yeah, head's going now at this stage. Um, and then after this, then he did start doing tours around America. It wasn't just stuck in Las Vegas. So he was mm. eventually getting out to Texas and different places and kind of performing in front of the general public and not just these kind of the fat, fat cats yeah. uh, that were yeah. smoking cigars in the front row, <laughs> let's say. Um, so he did start getting out there. And, but the thing is, when he was in Las Vegas, his whole day-to-day routine was get out of bed, do the show, go back to bed, get out of bed again, do the second show, go back to bed again. So he's pretty much in his bed, to the stage, and back to his bed. He didn't yeah. leave the hotel for the whole month, let's say. And he basically had him and his Memphis Mafia were hanging around him. So he's, what, seven to 15 guys, let's say, yeah. uh, at any given time. And yeah, so it's him in his hotel room, in his bed, to the stage and back, and just hanging out with the same few people day in, day out. Um, there were times, there was one story from the Memphis, one of the Memphis Mafia guys that they came into the hotel room. There was the seven of those, including, uh, uh, you know, uh, and Elvis as well. And there was 150 women in the <laughs> hotel room. In the, you know, obviously it's not a, a regular hotel room. It would have been a, a presidential suite or whatever yeah. it is. So yeah. it's just seven of those guys and 150 women. Um, and that was a kind of a regular, regular thing. And as you said, that that didn't um, bode well with his married status. No, you wouldn't think so. Yeah. You know, it's um, something only Elvis could do, I'm sure, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But even... And, um, Oh, go on. No, no, go on, go on. Oh, I was going to say we'll probably touch on it later, but even when he was back in Vegas or back in Graceland's, you know, after the divorce, he used to mm. have massive parties with people like that, like the fans. Or he was known to actually, um, there'd always be girls lined up at the gate waiting. They were called yeah. the gate girls. They'd be waiting at the gate for when he'd drive in or drive out and he'd always stop and, you know, sign stuff for him. He was always very good to the fans. He'd give them time, you know. Yeah. But he was known for actually inviting them, inviting them up to the house, you know, and they actually became friendly with him and he knew them on a first name basis. There was like groups of them. He had a house out in California as well. Yeah. And these two separate groups would actually get to meet each other and they became friends then and it was like they had a network between each other and they'd contact each other and be like oh yeah Elvis is out here there's no point queuing up at Graceland or vice versa but um yeah for Christmas and everything he'd actually hire out the local night the local nightclub and throw a party for all the the girls at the gate and everything and he'd go down but um yeah it's um it's a weird weird life you know having that many people around you and being able to throw parties like that. And, mm. you know, a lot of these parties, as you mentioned, would have been, what, 14, 15 men, including Elvis and 100, 150 women. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose the less said, the better. <laughs> so and once you get used to that kind of lifestyle, it's hard to do anything else, you know? Yeah, it'd be hard to walk away from it. And yeah. even the guys in the Memphis Mafia, like they were married as well. They all got married around the same time as Elvis you know they were the same age as him they were mm. getting to the age where you'd be getting married settling down and they'd have to deal with like Elvis wanting to party and wanting to you know live the single life yeah. while they had their partners you know and a lot of them would have lived maybe on the grounds of Graceland with their wife or very close to them just down the street you know mm. 
And Absolutely. he wanted he wanted to constantly be doing stuff with the guys. You know, if he was bored, the guys had to be there ready to, you know, whether it's go off racing cars, driving motorbikes. They um you'd you'd wonder how their wives put up with it. And mm. I know a lot of them ended up getting divorced as well. But yeah. you're basically at Elvis's beck and call. But there was a thing I remember hearing the guy saying as well, if he was in a bad mood, you had to be in a bad mood. Mm. But if he was in a good mood, you had to be in a good mood. You know, and it was the same with you know, um with drugs as well. If he was taking seven of these pills, you had to take seven. And he wouldn't let you not do it, you know? Yeah. Which was tough on the, the guys as well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing some of the guys from Memphis Mafia talking about that and how it's supposed when he became dependent on sleeping pills and the uppers and the downers, mm. his, his mood, especially after he got divorced, his mood was up and rock down. Bottom. Yeah, mm. rock bottom a lot of the time. He'd fairly get angry a lot. He'd, um, yeah, he just wasn't himself, especially after getting divorced. That kind of, that kind of shook him, I suppose. It wasn't mm. what he wanted in life. He's very family oriented kind of guy. So yeah. he, he kind of, yeah, he became a very moody character. You could say, and yeah. then the the drugs would have, you know, exacerbated the moods as well. So when he's happy, he's really happy. And when he's <laughs> down, he'd be terribly really down. down. Yeah, and but um, as I was saying earlier on, he thought he didn't think he had a problem, and he didn't think he was doing anything wrong because no. he got them off a doctor. Yeah, but um, his personal doctor was called Doctor Nick, and he'd bring him up in the middle of the night. And he'd send over an he'd send over an envelope, and you know there could be like a hundred pills in it, mm. and he'd take he'd be taking fifty sixty pills a day, you yeah, know, pills crazy. to go sleep, to wake up, to for everything. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. It's you'd wonder how he he lasted so long. Yeah, and it was it the case that his doctor was, I suppose it was he was charged with neglect or you know, yeah. malpractice, yeah. you could say, um, after his, after Elvis' death, but he did get away with it, whatever, whatever mm. happened. Um, yeah. I suppose you can compare it to Michael Jackson's doctor's same kind of situation. It's, yeah, very similar. So very similar. And of course, did Michael Jackson actually marry Elvis' daughter, Lisa Marie? He did. So, he yeah, did, yeah. kind of a two world what? icons music icons in the separate eras they're very the, connected yeah, the king of pop and the king of rock yeah that's it mm. and then two of them kind of went out a, I suppose a similar enough way now that you think of it they were, very similar actually and both yeah. kind of young you know I, I think they're, uh, what uh, Michael Jackson was about 50 or something wasn't he and then yeah I think he was wasn't he something around that yeah um, of course Elvis was 40, only 42 when he died mm. which is Madness, but I suppose we're getting to that there now. This is kind of coming into the last few years of his life where yeah. his incredible touring um I suppose schedule uh was just absolutely bonkers. He mm. never had a he'd have like maybe a week off or two weeks off here and there and he'd go back to Graceland. And I think one of the final albums that he recorded, um, he didn't even want to go to the studio anymore. He was very very disillusioned with the whole thing he just mm. he wasn't in love with the music anymore he just it was just something I had to do in order to make more money in order to keep this whole machine start feeling like a job run. yeah exactly yeah so he basically said to him look if you want me to record an album 
you bring the album to me. So he, mm. up, you know, he did it in Graceland. They got a recording truck outside. They snaked all the wires from the truck into the house and they set up in the jungle room, as they call it, him and the band. And they basically mm. recorded one of his, one of his final albums. It was the kind of the, because there was some gospel in it as well now. I have got the name in front of me here now, but that was like the last recording that he did was in Graceland because he just didn't want to go to a studio anymore. Yeah. Um, as I said as well, he recorded something like 784 songs <laughs> in total over his career. And that's a long, long time in the studio. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I love being in the studio myself, but it comes a time when that's a bit too much, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I'd imagine. So, and as you said, he was... 42 you know it's not like he was 62 or 72 when he was after recording 700 and something songs yeah you know that's That's a a, lot in such a short period of time time. so basically by the coming to the end of his life I suppose you could say he was starting to gain weight which was you know a cardinal sin in in Mm. Hollywood in in anywhere like that in, in the music business or whatever um and of course at this time he was still he was wearing his iconic jumpsuits from mm. when he started his Las Vegas Renzi, when he started wearing these like white jeweled um, jumpsuits with the wings under his arms. When he went out like this, he looked like a, a yeah. bird. He had capes on, he had all this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the, the lifestyle kind of started grinding on him. He started getting overweight. He couldn't sleep. So he's taking a ton of sleep pills. He's taking uppers downers. Um, he started a very bad diets as well. He had t- terrible, mm. terrible diets. Um, really yeah. greasy, deep fried foods. And when he finds something he liked, like um, sauerkraut and potatoes, that's all he would eat for weeks on end. And then he gets sick of it and then go on to something else. And yeah. of course, there was that very famous dish he had. Do you know what that is now? Off the top of your there's head. A couple, there's, um, there's a couple. There's a couple. Are you talking about the sandwich? The sandwich. The fried yeah. peanut butter madonna sandwich. Yeah, and it was and pretty much a loaf of bread, wasn't yeah. it? A loaf of bread <laughs> cut in half with, what to say, banana and... Peanut butter, peanut banana, butter and, and sometimes uh, there'd be uh, jello or jelly yeah, on jelly, it. Jelly, yeah. And then he deep fried the whole that. thing. Yeah, so <laughs> you covered in batter and deep fry it. I've actually yeah. had it myself and it's Did you? quite nice, but I, so. I could only eat one half of a normal size sandwich of it. It's really filling. But yeah. like he was eating, as you said, a whole loaf. A whole loaf. That's probably five, six thousand calories at least. Which, and your <laughs> yeah. your normal daily, you know, recommendations, what, like 2,500 for a mm. man anyway, 2,500 calories a day. He was eating probably twice that in one meal. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And it was really greasy, deep fried, terrible, terrible stuff on his system. And I think it had a, a knock on effect on his health and his mm. toilet ventures, you could say. Um, yeah, that was like um, another addiction as well. Eating, you know, he'd um, yeah. his personal maid was there in the house 24 hours and she'd mm. normally get a call. It could be two, three o'clock in the morning. He'd be wanting like cheeseburgers or, you know, one of them sandwiches. There's actually a story that he was in Graceland and he got a craving for a burger. He used to get out in California. He sent his personal jet to pick up like a hundred of them burgers and fly them back to <laughs> Memphis. That's amazing, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that was, it was that, like that over-exuberant lifestyle and mm. all the prescription drugs, all that stuff basically led to him on his last day, he went to the toilet, he was sitting on the toilet and he died of a heart attack. 
mm-hmm. and he was found on the floor, um, lifeless pretty much. Um, yeah. And that was in 77, that was summer of 77. This is actually, he was back on a break from touring. So this is like in between two tours. He just went back to Graceland for a few weeks mm. and ended up dying on the toilet. Um, yeah, they had um, they'd said that the week coming up to it, he, um, <clears throat> in the week coming up to it, that his mood hadn't been great. And the last day they'd, he'd had a couple of friends and his new girlfriend, Ginger. Ginger, yeah. Yeah, Ginger Alden, I think. Yeah. Um, were there and a couple of the guys and they'd been out playing racquetball and... Elvis oh, yes. hit himself in the shin because obviously the weight, he um he wasn't as nimble on the court as he once was. And he used to have an awful temper if he couldn't do something. So he ended up hitting himself in the shin and got very annoyed and said, that's it, let's go inside. Mm. So I think they were up until like three or four in the morning, could have been. And he was sitting around the piano and he was playing gospel songs and singing. Then he went to bed and she fell asleep straight away and the last thing she heard him say was I'm going to the toilet to read. He used to love apparently sitting on the toilet reading and he had had his toilet adapted to be very comfortable. Yeah. So it was more like a, a ke- sitting on a couch than an actual toilet and he could King spend on his hours throne. in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um, a lot of people say, you know, he, um, he died because he was so fat and stuff like that. But there's and photos potentially of them. backed up and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, of, there's photos like greasy of greasy food and that potentially. There's photos of him looking very, very fat around the time he died. But there was um there's a couple of sources that say it was, you know, he could one day he'd look like he was maybe twenty or thirty foot twenty or thirty stone. Then the next day he could look like he was you know, 15 stone. Hmm. As you said, it was because he was backed up. He had an elongated intestine and a couple, a lot of issues with his intestine. Yeah. And he couldn't, his food, his stomach couldn't process food properly. And he was obviously eating the wrong type of food if you have any sort of stomach issues. Yeah. So he, you know, he could, he might be able to have a movement for weeks at a time. And then it happened where he'd need to have a movement but he'd need to have it there and then, you know, he'd need, he'd almost need to be on a toilet. He couldn't stop it. And, um, he, one of his greatest fears was about, uh, pooing himself on stage, to put it nicely. And I think, I think it might have actually happened one night when he done this, when he done a karate kick, kind of stained the pants a bit and it really embarrassed him. Yeah. There was one thing that they could have done to solve it and he refused to do it. They would have given him a colostomy bag. Oh, and his yes. exact words was, I'm Elvis Presley. I'm not walking out on stage with a colostomy bag ha- hanging out of my jumpsuit. Yeah. So no. So no. he kept on going and the issues got worse and worse. That's and sure, nice. yeah. the more pain he'd be in, the more painkillers he'd take. That's true. Which weren't great. Yeah. You know, and more comfort food he'd eat then as well and exactly exactly yeah this is the stuff that you don't hear the stuff in the the documentary (laughs) (laughs) yeah not most of them anyway no but um and uh yeah even this reminds me of um i suppose before he died when he was on tour going back to tom parker again now there was a time when 
I think Elvis was in bed. They couldn't really wake him up or something like this. He wasn't, he was due to go on stage very shortly. They couldn't, they couldn't really wake him up or anything like that. But Tom Parker got wind of it. He came to the door and knocked on the, the hotel door, which he actually never visited, apparently. He, him and Elvis were very, they're separate. Like, they, you know, mm. he'd see him on Showtime or whatever, but he never, never, um, made, you know, uh, never socialized. Yeah. yeah. Never socialized. So it was strange to get Tom Parker turned up at the hotel door and one of the Memphis Mafia guys opened the door and said, hey, he's in the bed there. We'll, we'll get him in the minute. And Tom just goes to him, nothing matters more than getting Elvis on stage tonight and having him perform. Nothing matters more. So he went yeah. in, apparently, into the room, lifted up his head, started smacking his face, dipped his head in water, all this kind of stuff in order to wake him up and get him on the stage. Mm. And that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that basically led to the, the all the pill taking and all the stuff and all the his eventual yeah. death, all that kind of that lifestyle just Yeah, exactly. I'd heard um a similar story to that. Could be the same one or maybe a different one, but it was that he almost had OD'd. Oh. And they couldn't the Memphis Mafia couldn't wake him and he was going blue in the face and, you know, yeah. vomiting. And they panicked. They called the doctor and Colonel Parker. And that's why he came to the room and the doctor was in ah. there. Okay, maybe it's, it, we were hearing the different different versions, the same story. Could, could be, be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, he went in there and slapped him around and everything, and he came back and he goes, "I don't care what happens, that man, as long as he's on stage, and that's, that's yeah, the most important thing." That's it, yeah. and that's really telling about how he felt towards Elvis, you know, and what mm. Elvis had to deal with. You know, I think he was actually brought up on charges as well for, I suppose, what would you say, endangering his life? Maybe not that far, yeah. but he was brought up on charges about how he treated Elvis, but. Again, he was let go, not never, yeah. never, never stuck. Uh, he was always of the mindset that, oh, Elvis, he could have just told me to, he wanted to stop at any time. No problem. If, he, if there was a song he didn't want to do or a film he didn't want to do, that's no problem. He didn't mm. have to do it. But the, the truth of the matter was very opposite. He always said, yeah, if you don't do this, a, you're not doing anything else. Exactly. They kind of had like a father-son relationship. It was almost yeah. like Elvis was afraid to say no to him. You know, yeah. whatever he said, Elvis just, Shut up and done. Yeah. You know? Tom Parker was all about the, he was all about the business side of it. He was always mm. about getting the next thing, moving on to the, you know, making that connection, getting onto the next stage, getting onto the bigger stage, that'll get more exposure to get onto the bigger stage and all this kind of thing. Because yeah. I was just wanting to just kind of connect with fans and make music and the general kind of musician story, pretty much, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It wasn't about being the superstar, it was about the music and the yeah. fans. Again, he had to make so much money because Tom Barker was getting 50% of it and he yeah. was gambling it away. So he kept needing more money. So he kept getting Elvis to go out on more tours. And Yeah, he was like a cash cow for him. Yeah, it drove him into the ground completely. Yeah. Even Elvis though, Elvis was nearly broke when he when he died as well. He only had, I know it's for us it's a lot, but for Elvis, when you think about the money he made during his lifetime, he only had $1 million left in the bank. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? He would have made, yeah, he would have made like hundreds of millions, you know, if, if Tom yeah. Parker didn't make, take half of it. Um, yeah. And even if he'd, if he wasn't driven into the ground and died at 42, he could have obviously gone on for many, many more years and made, you know. Well, you'd more. imagine so anyway. He could. Yeah. I don't think if he hadn't died then and he had lived, I don't think he'd still be alive now with all the health mm. issues he had. He still, know? yeah, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But um, yeah, after his death, there was mourners from around the world gathered mm. at Graceland, his, his home, of course. 
And again, as we said to this day, they still go ma- ma- amazing. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people a year go from all over the world. And of course, people that didn't see him, that say people that lived in Europe or Australia or wherever didn't get to see him tour, they made the journey over the Greatland after he yeah. died to see him, see his grave. Um, but then, you know about the whole, I suppose, conspiracy that mm. Elvis didn't actually die. And he's still alive. Yeah. And there was reports for years and years. Oh, I saw Elvis. He was down at the supermarket and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> or he was in Home Alone. Have you heard that one? No. He's... Yeah. I think it's uh, I think it's Home Alone 1. And whichever one of, of them is anyway, I think it's not an early shorts number one. The mother is standing at the airport ticket office. Oh, I remember. And there's a man standing behind her in a brown coat and he makes apparently the same facial expression Elvis used to make. He has a beard and hairbrush back, but it's all brown. Now I'll admit he does have a slight resemblance to Elvis, but for like even today, people say, oh, he changed his name and they can't find that cast member anywhere and there's no Mm. record of him and all that. So to say (laughs) that Elvis appeared as an extra in Home Alone. Yeah. Which like if you would fake your death and you're trying to lie low, you're not going to appear in a film. No, no, especially <laughs> not the like of Elvis. You'd be so recognized like immediately. Mm. Yeah. Or even step into the bit before you get out of your car, pretty much someone will see you. you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. There, there's a lot of those kind of like um, Paul McCartney from the Beatles. There was a whole thing about him. They, they, <laughs> yeah. they said that he did die and that mm. he was replaced and all this. There's lots of these. It's always these kind of conspiracy theories in this way. and But uh, the Elvis one was a big one that was kind of perpetrated. Or, you know, it went on for many years, people seeing, saying this song. And it's always yeah, those kind of... Um, yeah, it was always those kind of, those, you know, those magazines that they used to have, those kind of alien magazines. and Oh, the the National Enquirer. That kind of stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was always in those. And, oh, he's an alien now and he's, <laughs> he's flying around the spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's mad, but there's like there's Facebook groups, massive face Facebook groups of like there could be tens of thousands of people in them that show evidence that Elvis is alive today. You know, they strongly believe yeah. Elvis is still alive. And I actually know of one group where the admin says that she won't tell who she is or give any details about herself but she's in contact with Elvis every day she's very close to him oh. and every couple of days she starts the day off by posting a message directly from Elvis to the fans in this group yeah. which I have to admit is very nice of her now but um, <laughs> it's just you know there's extremes like there's having fun with the idea that oh he faked his death and you know went off to live a happy life mm-hmm. you know but then there's the extremes, there's the fanatics who like strongly, strongly believe in that he is still alive, you know, and they go overboard. Yeah. But um, so is it a fact that they can't accept that he died? Is that probably, he's, probably is. bigger than life and he, he couldn't have died, you know, I don't believe it. Kind of, that's, that's probably, probably a big part of it, it, I'd say. Yeah, you know, he was so, I think he was a very, a very easy celebrity to get obsessed with. You know, now I'm not talking like a stalker, but obsessed in a a healthy way of if there yeah. is such a thing, you know. A, a normal such, fan way. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Gravitate towards music and all that, yeah. I think when 
for any of the ones that were alive back then, to wake up one day and hear that this person, your favorite singer, who you've never seen, or maybe you have seen in concert, and they're young, they're 42. You get up one day and they're gone. You know, you people back then would have never thought that would have, was going to happen for at least another 30, 40 years, you know. Yeah. And it's, I'm sure for some of them, it almost felt like a family member had died, mm. you know. Yeah. So, And they say that if you were alive at the time, everyone would remember where they were when they heard that Elvis had died. Yeah. It's, it's like, I suppose in our, our generation, you remember where you were when you were told that 9-11 happened, let's say. Exactly. So it's a similar, or like when JFK was shot or something like that. It's just, you a know, global Elvis event. Died, global event. It was news, the king is dead. That was like the headline yeah. all over the world. Mm. Um, of course, we never said about, whenever he left the building after a gig, he always announced, Elvis has left the building. Yeah. And he used to hop out off the stage straight into a car and gone. Um, yeah, he'd be gone before the music even starts. Yeah, yeah. Or so, before so the music stopped. even stops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, when he died, like he, Jen, he left the building for good. Mm. And uh, yeah. But then mm. it's basically, he was a huge icon in his time. He was a cultural phenomenon. He started rock and roll, started rock and roll, and he, he was just bigger than life. And of course, that mm. he lives on today. He's like one of the very few musicians, like we've mentioned before, like you've had, you've had the Beatles, you have Michael Jackson, you've had these, mm. there's a few, very few other uh, musicians or artists, bands that are on that same level. I suppose Elvis is not even on that level. He was way above them, mm. I suppose, in a way as well. And plus part of, part of what kind of drove him so, you know, despair, to be just so despaired towards the end of his life was that he had no one on his same wavelength. He had no one, say, even in the Beatles, they were like one of the biggest bands in the world, but there was four of them and they kind of all relate to each other. They had yeah. that camaraderie, but Elvis was on his own. He didn't have anyone to bounce ideas off. Um, he never asked for advice, apparently, as well. Mm. Um, you had to come to him and say, hey, Elvis, I'm thinking maybe you could do this song and do this and here's a, here's a game plan. What do you think? Yeah. But he'd never ask you the advice. He'd never go... Um, Brian, what's this? You know, what do you think of the song? Do you think it's good or whatever? He just he'd go with it, and yeah, he was basically larger than life. And obviously, it does keep going to today. That when you look at uh, Elvis impersonators; they're <laughs> still massive. I think we we mentioned earlier on about the the Las Vegas uh, chapels yeah. where you can get married by an Elvis impersonator. Yeah, that's a major in industry in itself. Like between the you know the chapels, but you also have the guys that'll put on concerts, yes. you know, as Elvis. Like that's, yeah. that's amazing. And that'll always live on because it's as close as you're going to get to actually seeing Elvis in, in person. Yeah. You know? And even there's um, conventions all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, well, obviously, maybe not in more recent times, but yeah, there'd be conventions, there'd be contests, to be even Southeast Asia, there's massive competitions to find. <laughs> an Elvis impersonator. Yeah. And even though he, he was never there, he never visited. Um, but he's absolutely massive over in Southeast Asia to this day. And there's, you know, obviously so many films that were f made off the back of um, Elvis. I, I know like, two that come to mind were, I suppose they're more independent, off obscure films like uh, 3000 Miles to Graceland where 
Oh, I if, love that one. Yeah, you've Kurt yeah. Russell and you've Nicolas Cage, and they're all they're robbing a bank dressed as Elvis, Elvis. with the jumpsuits, and then you had like uh, Bubba Hotep was uh, another guy, good one. Yeah, yeah, the guy from the <laughs> e- Evil Dead. What's his name? Oh, uh, his Bruce name is Campbell. Case, yeah. Bruce Campbell. Yeah, he's like he's playing. He's Elvis. Um, mm. I think he didn't he didn't die back then, but he went into hiding and he paid another guy to you know portray him or something like that and then yeah he ends up in a nursing to swap home back but yeah. man died or something wasn't it something like that yeah and then and isn't there a a black guy waiting who's JFK oh yeah he thinks he's JFK in the wheelchair, <laughs> in the wheelchair yeah that he died as, he faked his death as well and died yeah. his skin yeah <laughs> so there's some two very obscure uh, Elvis film <laughs> related yeah. uh, suggestions maybe not the best films ever made but they're Interesting to say the least. They're entertaining anyway. <laughs> entertaining. <laughs> but I suppose you've um, coming to the end of our Jenny Mac. We're nearly, I suppose, nearly coming up to two hours. Um, this is morning. probably the longest episode of Copper's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything more you want to add to, I suppose, the story of Elvis? Any other anecdotes that you might have or anything um, like that? Yeah, yeah. His, uh, his last concert. I think it was in Indianapolis. The guitar that he used on stage. Have you ever heard this story? I don't think so. So he was walking off stage and we mentioned Ginger. Yes, already his girlfriend on. at the time of his death. Yeah. Yeah. So his brother or her brother worked for Elvis. He had been a cop and he'd got injured, I think, and he was off for a while and he started being a bodyguard and Elvis asked him, would he come full time? So he eventually did. He um, so he became his bodyguard, and he was at the last concert working. And when he came out, when he came out, Elvis handed him the guitar and said, "Here, this is for you as a gift." Wow! He brought it home, put it in his closet, thought not now nothing of it. I think it was like a month later, Elvis died, and for years he could never bring himself to look at this guitar. Yeah. But he ended up being contacted years later anyway, and asking would he sell it? And he, I think he sold it for like two grand, something small. Oh, no. Yeah, and he paid <laughs> off, he paid off yeah. his uh, college fees and he always says that Elvis helped put him through college. You know, he yeah. went back and he studied to be a lawyer. But uh, then this guitar got sold to, I think it was the National Enquirer and they auctioned, or they done a competition. But that guitar now is valued at like probably a hundred grand oh, you know if not at more. least yeah you know when you said and he, he sold, sold it for two thousand i was like oh i'm died i died inside yeah. a little bit because that's it'd be worth like that guitar be worth maybe two thousand new if you were to buy a new one of that yeah, model that exactly. particular that particular model being elvis's last you know live guitar yeah. that yeah. would yeah i'd say now it's worth hundreds of thousands but perhaps yeah but that guy actually yeah. uh was interesting so he went to college, studied to be a lawyer after Elvis died. He went into the entertainment industry as an entertainment lawyer. And he ended up being the head of one of the divisions of Sony in America. Right. And he launched the careers of, I can't remember them off the top of my head now, but some very big solo singers as well in the 90s. Yeah. He launched their careers. He discovered them and all that. So it's kind of 
it's weird how he decided to go into the music industry then after you know he was a cop then he was Elvis's bodyguard yeah stuff like that but uh, another funny one about him is when Elvis started going out with his sister he met the brother obviously and got on well with him and he used to invite him motorbike riding motorbike racing whatever that all the guys that have their own motorbike and you know to take off could be in the middle of the night drive around for hours and he kind of he didn't like motorbikes and so he started thinking of excuses why he couldn't go and it'd never work one of them was Elvis or one of them was that he'd broke his leg while on duty and he was off for a while so yeah. Elvis uh Elvis bought I think like a side cart so he could sit and come on the rides <laughs> but uh then he started using the excuse I live too far away it's two o'clock in the morning I'm not getting up to come over to Graceland it goes fine 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 a week later he went over and picked up him and his wife brought him for a drive over to Graceland but stopped on the street just before Graceland drove up and there's a, a lot of houses built here you see where this is going yeah, yeah. <laughs> he uh, he stopped at a house and he was like, I'm just, uh, I just want to go in here and meet someone. You're coming in. So Elvis walked in, guy walked in. There was no one there. And he was like, have a look around. He's probably late. So they looked around, right? And uh, came back. Well, it's a lovely house. Grand. Glad you like it. It's yours. I've bought it for you. Don't worry about anything. <laughs> and uh, he turned around to him and he goes, and you, so he handed the wife the keys to the house and he was like, I hope you're happy with it. And he goes, you come with me, come out to the garage. He walked out into the garage and there was a brand new, like 1976 Harley Davidson motorbike. And he goes, now you live alongside me and you have a brand new bike. You have no excuses. You can't get out of it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Your man hated it to begin with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, he's, um, yeah, I don't think there'll be anyone like Elvis ever oh, again. I don't think so. I don't think so. Absolutely, it really says something. It really says something when, like, people that you would consider legends hold him as a legend. You know, like Paul McCartney yeah. looks up to Elvis. You know, and you know how the world feels about Paul McCartney. You know, Bruce Springsteen. You know, Bob mm. Dylan. They all yeah. look up to Elvis. You know, yeah. and they drew inspiration from Elvis. Or mm. Elvis made them want to be singers. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Absolutely. I think the funny thing about Bob Dylan, I think Elvis did like Bob Dylan's music. He liked the lyrics. He liked mm. the songs, how the songs made him feel. But he didn't like Bob Dylan's voice. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. I can kind of relate to because it is a kind of a original type a type of a voice, I suppose mm. you could say. But um, I know that we'll probably be covering Bob Dylan on this podcast at some stage. Without so a doubt at some stage, I'd say. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think we'll, we'll have to leave it there. I, I, I think there's so much that we could have covered and there'd probably be diehard fans of Elvis listening to this thinking, oh, you didn't mention that or you didn't mention mm. this. And we apologize. We can't, you know, possibly cover everything that ever did, ever, um, ever occurred with Elvis, let's say. But there are some, like, I suppose I watched, uh, in anticipation of this a little bit of research, I watched The Searcher, the HPO documentary mm. um, kind of hard to find but if you have your, your means of finding things you can find them um, but it's probably it's really really good documentary if people want to go and 
I suppose, go further into Elvis's life. This is all if, you know, some people might listen to this for the first time and only hear the story for the first time and now they might go, go on further and delve into the music like I will now. I'll, like I, I suppose I didn't, I had a passing knowledge, as I said, of mm. Elvis and obviously you know who he was and everyone knows who he was, but I didn't go into his life as much and after all the research, I'm, you know, well more on board yeah. with, with Elvis and same thing happened to me with Neil Young as well. I wasn't very familiar with Neil Young and I think it was my second episode and then I went all the research and I'm like, big fan of Neil Young now. So it's kind of... Really? Yeah, it kind of, it does that to you. You, you. you become more familiar with the person and the story and, yeah. and and obviously the music then as well. And I hope that's what people are getting from this podcast as well. They kind of, it opens them up to new stories and basically histories of these people that they'd known all their lives that they didn't necessarily know about and mm. kind of suppose relate to them a bit more. But um, enough, enough for me, I suppose. <laughs> if Again, if people want to listen to Brian and his amazing po- podcast, the concerts that made us. Um, tell them again where where they can where they can find you. Yeah, well, before I do that, uh, just want to say thanks for asking me on. I oh, had a no great problem. time, and I'm always looking for an excuse to talk about Elvis. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and it's a great great thing you're doing with the podcast. I've listened to the other episodes now and truly enjoyed them. I think I was oh, saying yeah. it to you before. It's the the first podcast I've listened to in a long time where. As soon as an episode is finished, I need the next episode. <laughs> oh, so you're definitely onto me, a Brian. good thing. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, but yeah, if people want to find me, um, I'm on all social media at Concerts That Made Us podcast. We're on all the podcast players as well. And the website as well at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. Yeah, you you just made that website recently enough as well, isn't it? It's kind of yeah, yeah. The last last uh, two months, I'd say it's yeah new enough. So, so still still working through a few things with it, but yeah, it's doing the job. It's doing the job, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, so best best luck to you and your future podcast endeavors. And I'm you sure do. we'll be chatting to each other again and in a podcast form <laughs> some someday. More than likely, more than likely, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, so. For those that still listening to the end of this, we're probably reaching two hours now, which is the longest episode. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Of course, if you want to follow the podcast, go over to social media. We have Facebook, Instagram, at Copper's Corner Podcast. I have my own stuff, Copper Kelly Music. I have my music and Instagram and all that kind of stuff on Spotify and all those good places. And if you want to, again, support the podcast itself, because we are both independent podcasters. We don't have any... We don't have Spotify behind us giving us 100 million like Joe Rogan or <laughs> there's so many of these companies now that are, you know, as NPR and mm. all these like Tom Hanks gets his own podcast about, uh, whatchamacallit, yeah. the Band yeah. Brothers now and all this, you know, there's no financial backing behind what we do. So if exactly if you can help, help us out at all. And I know Brian is going to be launching a Patreon soon. So go and follow his podcast and have a listen to that when he, whenever he launches that. But if you want to go to uh, Patreon and uh, help support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Copper's Corner Podcast. And you can give a dollar a month or a euro a month or whatever it is. And that keeps, the, as I said, keeps the fires burning and the wheels turning and, you know, keeps us going. As I say, it keeps us in coffee and beer and such. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, again, thanks very much for coming on, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. I really hope you enjoy yourself and I hope the listeners enjoyed it too. And I suppose we'll say goodbye for now. 
and we'll see you next time. So say goodbye to the lovely people, Brian. <laughs> Bye, folks. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Brilliant. All the best. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.